You are listening to the Heavenly Chi Podcast, episode 38. Today our special guest is Ross Rosen, and we are talking about the Shenhammer Pulse system. Hey everybody, I'm Fiona Gitchum. And I'm Claire Pyers. And today we're talking with Ross Rosen. Hi Ross, and welcome to the show. Hi guys, thank you for having me. It's great to have you with us. Ross's early interest in Chinese culture, philosophy, and martial arts led to the study of acupuncture and Chinese herbal medicine at the Pacific College of Oriental Medicine in New York City. Ross has dedicated years to the study of contemporary Chinese pulse diagnosis, otherwise known as CCPD, and contemporary oriental medicine also known as COM, and Chinese medical psychology, and is one of only a few practitioners to be certified by and continue to receive hands-on training with Dr. Leon Hammer in these disciplines. Russ is a senior certified teacher and serves on the board of directors of Dragon Rises Incorporated, as well as Contemporary Oriental Medicine Foundation, and is a direct lineage holder and spokesman for CCPD and COM. Ross has also studied under Jeffrey Yuen, both privately as well as through the American University of Complementary Medicine's PhD program. His clinic is in Westfield, New Jersey, and his website is www.acupuncturandherbalmedicine.com. The Heavenly Tea podcast is produced weekly for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlycheapodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Chi Podcast to your favorite RSS feed, iTunes, or Stitcher. You can also follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. If you really do enjoy our show, please rate us on iTunes. Hi, Ross. It's so great to have you with us. Welcome to the show. So we're really interested to hear. We just found out like a couple of minutes ago that um, of your story of how you got into Chinese medicine. Do you want to tell us a little bit about a little bit about that? Because you didn't start out as a Chinese medicine practitioner. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So I think like many people who get into this field, um, I was just came into this world with some type of interest in Eastern culture and philosophy and always intrigued by martial arts. Um, So when I was a little kid, I started getting into um, different types of martial arts and classes and increase in exposures to different types of philosophies um, in the Asian world. Um, But of course, you know, you're growing up in a time, especially in this country, in the U.S., where it doesn't seem like a viable career, right? It didn't ever seem like a place to go to learn to become a doctor of Chinese medicine. And so I kind of went through the, the typical trajectory of going off to college. And from there, I went to law school um, right after college. And then um, directly after that, passing my bar exam, I, I practiced law for um, two years in New Jersey and New York uh, and just realized very quickly that it was not a career for me. It didn't quite have the soul or the spirit that I was looking for especially in something that I was going to be spending most of my life um, doing, most of my waking hours participating in. So uh, one day I I was uh, in my office behind closed doors during the lunch break, which I often was because I just needed to check out a little bit. Uh, And I came across, I was reading uh, the Village Voice newspaper, and I came across an advertisement 
for the Pacific College of Oriental Medicine right in New York City, and it was like a little epiphany. A light bulb went off. Uh, that day I called up. I received the application a few days later. I applied. I went for my interview, got accepted, quit my job, and with all in a few weeks, I was uh, embarking on a brand new career um, in Chinese medicine. We're so grateful that you decided to do that because you've clearly made a really great contribution to, you know, to the world of Chinese medicine um, and particularly with your, you know, with your experience that you're sharing from what you've learned with Dr. Hammer and also with Jeffrey Yuan. Can you tell us a bit about how you came to learn from them? Well, sure. So, when you choose to go back to school for something like Chinese medicine, it's usually because you have a strong desire and a passion, which was definitely the case for me. And so going in to PCOM and diving in as a full-time student was just an amazing experience to me. And I was very thirsty. I was like a sponge for the information. I was, you know, reading as much as I could and, and, and studying as much as I could. And what started to happen after the first, I would say two years probably of the program was you know, the information, I think, started to get a little stale. It started to get a little repetitive. Um, it became more about memorizing facts and information, but less so on really how to diagnose and know what's going on with a patient without relying on answers and subjective symptoms and, and interviews, right? Um, and so for me, the allure of Chinese medicine and the philosophy was, was this ability to, to look and touch and understand without having to necessarily rely on, on that type of information and feedback from the patient. Although, of course, that's one of our, our, our pillars of diagnostics and, and we, we use that, of course, but I knew there was something deeper than that. And so in the course of my schooling, I came across the teachings of Dr. Hammer, especially as I think I really my last year of school probably when I got exposed to some of those teachings as an intern. And I began trying to apply some of those principles in the clinic, and it was actually met with a tremendous amount of resistance from supervisors in, in the clinic. Um, it's interesting because I think, you know, in a lot of the schools that teach TCM, it tends to be a very compartmentalized way of, uh, of learning and studying and applying um, some of the information. And so I started to think outside that box a little bit from reading these books and the articles and so forth. And so when I started to get the opportunity to use some of these theories in patients in the clinic, I started to um, get very excited. And of course, you want to try all these different um, techniques and, and theories on, on a whole bunch of different patients with varieties of diagnoses and, and symptoms and so forth. And I started to pitch that to my supervisors, you know, and the, the typical response that I would get was, you know, show me that in the textbook. Where is that in the TCM books? And of course, you know, you, it was very hard to try and fit um, the diagnosis of many of these complaints into these neat little packages. And I remember one patient in particular uh, was a 27-year-old woman who was amenorrheic, so she hadn't had her period in 12 years, and she had been coming into the PCOM clinic for about six years and seeing all the different interns back and forth, and I looked through and scanned the chart, and I would see all the same typical TCM diagnoses. And from me getting to know this patient and interviewing her and feeling her pulse a little bit, and this is before I really had a lot of pulse training, I saw certain signatures on her pulse and some of the history really resonated with some of the, the readings that I had done on Dr. Hammer with 
heart shock and trauma and seeing that as a root cause of separating the heart kidney axis and, and some of those energetics and I started pitching that to the, to the supervisors who begrudgingly allowed me to pursue this line of, um, of treatment and within six weeks she had had her period and she I treated her for the next year and a half and my wife who was my assistant at that time treated her for the following year after that she had her period every single month from thereafter and we actually still keep in touch with her and she hasn't missed a period since so um, seeing the efficacy and the power of, of what could be done from understanding patients in this way really helped me to um, just um, finalize my desire to pursue this particular lineage of information and so after graduating I sought out um, instructors trying to learn this particular system and, and at that time it was barely anyone certified to teach or, or actively teaching and I came across an advertisement for a course that was up in the New England School of Acupuncture and I signed up very enthusiastically we all you know totally excited to get up there and, and you know got a hotel and everything else and got up to this showed up at the school and the classroom was pitch black there was no one there and I was like what's going on I finally found someone in the administrative offices who told me, oh, sorry, the class was canceled. You and only, only two people registered for the course, me and one other person, so they canceled it, but they neglected to call me and tell me. So they were very nice and, and were able to give me the information for the teacher who I called on the phone and who felt so terrible. And he invited me a couple of weekends later to his home and we spent the weekend, just the two of us, going through the beginning information and really just the hands-on training. And um, from there, it was just, you know, you're hooked. You know, you just started practicing from with every patient you see and you're reading as much as you can. And um, from there, it just, you know, I went and studied with other teachers eventually and then went down to Florida to study with Dr. Hammer, who at that point had just um, purchased um, Dragon Rises College of Oriental Medicine. Uh, and so I would go down there, we'd have these intensives where we'd spend four days with patients and studying hands-on with Dr. Hammer, and we would do that a few times a year, and I did that for, wow, I mean, decade or more, um, and then just became a certified teacher myself and maintained very close relationship with Dr. Hammer. He's, you know, I kind of see Dr. Hammer as my grandfather figure, we're, we're very close, um, we email and, and speak all the time and pitch things back and forth to each other, I was just emailing with him this week on different topics that I'm finding in my clinic and different pulses and configurations and figuring out a whole bunch of other different types of things. So, um, you know, that's kind of, that's, that's the story in a nutshell of, of finding Dr. Hammer and pursuing the Shen Hammer approach. And then, you know, in terms of studying with Jeffrey, um, you know, I was lucky to have him so close being in New York City. And so, um, you know, the classical lineages were something that have always been an inspiration to me in learning some of the deeper aspects of the medicine and the channel systems and so I started taking all these courses that were offered in New York City and year-long acupuncture and herbal courses and essential oil courses and then eventually registered for the um, AUCM PhD program and uh, doing that on an ongoing basis. Sounds like such a great path you've had there where you know just this circumstance led you to start off with this private lesson. <laughs> Uh, with the teacher because the course was cancelled and then to just develop really strongly from so early on in your study. I think what's unique about that is that a lot of um, a lot of us who study, especially maybe when we're younger or 
not yet so aware of uh, our connection with the Chinese medicine philosophy as it can take a long time even after graduating before finding what you might like to specialize in. So yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's a great journey. And so let's start talking about the Shenhammer pulse diagnosis. What makes this model different to the traditional pulse diagnosis that is being taught at the schools? Wow, I mean, you know, there's so much. The, the, the Shenhammer pulse is really, um, it's such a sophisticated and subtle system. You know, that what's typically taught in school would be more of the model of Lisha Jen and you know, the 28 different pulse configurations, right? And, and I think even within that, I, my feeling was as a, as a student in school, I, I couldn't find anyone who really felt confident about what they were feeling, right? Um, you know, the, the running joke at, that we have is, is that everyone in this, all the supervisors in the clinics were saying, oh, that's, you know, it's wiry or it's slippery, right? <laughs> that was, those were the two pulse qualities that everyone was kind of hinging on. And, um, and if you got more than one supervisor in the room, they may actually be saying the opposite thing. So it, it didn't leave a lot for the instilling of confidence in what we were feeling and knowing that the pulse was so important, it just, um, it just led me to want to pursue really deeply the subtleties within the pulse. And that's something that the Shenhammer system allows for, right? So in, instead of 28 different pulse qualities, now we have uh, about 90 plus at last count, right? And these are discrete sensations that we're feeling on our fingertip. And so as we're looking at this sophisticated and subtle subtlety to the sensations, we're able to understand the whole person, right? The, their experience and their suffering of what they're going through in a way that reflects information about not just their current illness, but about their previous illnesses, about their constitution, about early insults to normal physiology, environmental stresses, traumas, the effects that their, that their lifestyle and behavioral patterns are having on their, on their, um, on their physiology and psychology, because the pulse tells us tremendous amount about emotional and psychological conditions. We have there's dozens of different associations that we make between specific pulse qualities and the types of psychological disorders that follow, right? So the Shenhammer system is also a multi-depth system, right? So a lot of the pulse systems are based off of a two-depth system, right? A lot like the, with the the Fu as a superficial pulse and the Zong as the deeper pulse. You know, in the Shenhammer system, we're looking at eight different depths, and we could even argue nine different depths, um, depending on how we break it down. And so we have the three major depths that are that are accessed once we actually press into the pulse, and we can we classify three different ones, which is the Qi depth, the blood depth, and the organ depth. And these are very specifically calibrated and precise anatomically, and they reflect different levels of energetics. So the chi depth is going to reflect more superficial illnesses and information, um, things that are, are early or acute on, in onset, and they also reflect the, the workings of the nervous system. We have the blood depth, which is a little bit deeper than the chi depth, which tells us about the circulation, um, the fluids in the blood. It tells us about heat or thickness in the blood. It tells us about toxins in the blood, um, hormones in the blood, lipids in the blood, and cholesterol. Um, then we have the organ depth, which is our deepest depth, which tells us about really the, the, the Zong organs themselves, the, the parenchymal tissue, what's happening specifically. Are they, um, 
are they working at the level that we would like to see? It tells about adaptive responses that people um, habituate to over time and, and chronicity of, of different types of illnesses. So that's kind of probably the, the most sophisticated depth, I would say, because it, it really taps us into what's happening specifically in the organ itself. Um, and generally, you know, when we have these three depths, what we, what we look for in the Schenhammer pulses, we have particular waveforms that we're looking for. And there's actually five different, uh, we're technically six different waveforms, but the normal waveform is kind of looks like a sine curve. So it's something that should start at the organ depth and rise to the chi depth and then gradually descend back down to the organ in the sine wave shape. And that tells us about, gives us a sense that, that, that physiologically, um, the system is working appropriately, then like I said, there's five other more pathological waveforms that give us information about either qi deficiency or obsessive compulsive thinking or uh, infectious processes or suppression from uh, medications and things like that. So in addition to, to now layering, we have the depths, we have the waveforms, we have um, the different um, vast number of qualities that we feel on, based on sensation and then instead of having six different pulse positions we actually have 28 different pulse positions that we um, inspect and analyze within each evaluation. Um, the six principal ones are, are of course associated with the typical Zong organs but then we have 22 complementary positions that tell us about different areas of the body or give us more information about specific Zong organs. So the, the left distal position, for example, has a whole bunch of other complementary positions associated with it. Right? The heart being the emperor is really the, one of the most important aspects that we look to on the pulse. And so as such, we, we can find all different other areas that will give me information about what's going on, whether or not there's aneurysms, whether or not um, there's prolapses in any of the valves and so forth. So the amount of information, or whether, the, whether the, the heart is energetically enlarged, you know, and overworking. Um, so all these aspects get blended into an analysis. So when, when we're analyzing a pulse record, and I have a whole form that I fill out that takes about takes about 20 to 30 minutes, to depending on the uh, the sophistication of and the complexity of, of the particular patient, but you know, so we fill this whole record out, and then there's a step-by-step -step process for how we teach to analyze it and break down and prioritize all of this information, right? And what's really useful is that the pulse, because of this subtlety and sophistication, it allows us to figure out multiple diagnoses, right? So it's not just looking at oh, this, there's liver chi stagnation or the spleen chi deficiency and there's some dampness. When I finish a pulse analysis, I typically have dozens of different diagnoses, right? Some of which are prioritized as immediate interventions, some of which are more root interventions, and some of which are more kind of secondary and ancillary things that usually oftentimes when you are treating the, the immediate or the root problems, those issues tend to resolve on their own or they get incorporated into um, the treatment plan. So, for example, if we're looking at someone um, with, um, you know, trauma, right, trauma, and we call it heart shock, they may have dozens of different diagnoses that, that reflect, um, say they're coming in for anxiety or insomnia, and we want to make sure we're um, treating all the different ancillary problems associated with what we're seeing, we may find that 
you know, the heart is showing up with qi deficiency, yin deficiency, the adrenals and the kidney yangs may be deficient, there may be blood stasis taking place, there may be trapped energy in the chest and diaphragm. Um, so all of these aspects get woven into a treatment strategy and a management plan to address all different aspects, giving weight to some of the more significant aspects of the diagnosis. Does that make sense? Certainly does. I have the question, how long does it take you to take the pulse with that kind of detail? Yeah, so on my first meeting with a patient, I typically spend 30 minutes feeling their pulse. Um, and it can be done quicker. Most of that, a lot of that time is, it take, is taken up by filling out the actual form because you have to write everything down and log it all in. Um, and usually within that um, period of time, five to seven minutes of that is also I'm um, taking uh, and overlaying um, the classical pulse model that I've learned over the years and also teach from Jeffrey Yuen's model. So um, seeing the relationships and blending those two and synthesizing the information is kind of where I really get to have fun. Right? That's, where, that's where so much of, uh, of the analysis takes place and, and, and the creativity and where the art of the medicine starts to um, come from. Mm, yeah, you know, I can imagine for me learning how to take the pulse was something that I got a lot of information out of right away. Um, I was quite surprised, you know, to observe that a lot of people didn't quite, you know, have what they needed to really grasp the pulse. But I'd already been working with hands-on healing for some years with people and I just find that when you put your fingers on the pulse really starts to transmit a lot of information so I can really relate to you having your own system that's a woven combination of the systems that you've learned as well and just really enjoying that moment of being in communication with the pulse like that. Yeah, you know, like anything else that we do, um, we have to make it our own, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's kind of the... Um, that's what takes things from the level of being a technician to someone who's, you know, a clinician, right? It, it, and and it's, it's the art of, of what we do and putting our own spirit in, into the process. Yeah, sure, sure. So this is a really complex system that you have here. I'm really looking forward to hearing more elaborations on, on how it works. Yeah, sure. You know, so... Um, one of the other things that I find really useful about this system is it's not ever intended to be dogmatic, right? So with, with something that is as big as this system is, it, it, it's not as complex as it first seems, right? So, you know, like anything else, when you're first learning something, you have to go through stages of development and learning and memorizing and understanding and cultivating your fingers to feel certain things and it seems a little bit overwhelming. As you start to um, you know, chew on it a little bit and practice it a little bit, you start to realize you know, the, the, the methodology is kind of, um, it makes sense. You know, there, there's a lot of um, um, logic also that goes along with what we do, but it also at the same time is open enough to evolve. And one of the things I love about it is that even in the time that I've been engaged with the Shenhammer system, so this is like since you know, 2000, 2001, is it's changed so dramatically. When I look back at the kinds of information and the sophistication of what was being taught even or, or um, 
taken from the pulses. So when you look at a pulse record back from 2003 or 2004, you know, in any given pulse position, you may see two or three different qualities. Now it's like seven, eight, nine different qualities, and you, you start to see all these things that are changing because the world we live in is changing. The types of things that we're exposed to are changing, you know, um, and I've been able to understand how the pulse is evolving to show us the kinds of pathologies that are being created from the new industrialized lifestyles and the modern lifestyles that we're all leaving. And so even in the past few years, I've actually added a whole number of different pulse qualities to that 90 you know, pulse lexicon of, of, of terms and, and, and sensations. Because once you start getting accustomed to the pulse, and, and recognizing all these different sensations. And you know what gets tricky in the beginning, of course, is that you never feel a sensation in isolation, right? Because everyone has multiple sensations happening simultaneously. So you have to be able to distill which part of that is the wiry pulse, which part of that is the rough pulse, which part's the choppy, which is the slippery, which is the reduced, which is the, you know, so on and so forth. But then all of a sudden you start to realize that, wait a minute, now I'm feeling something that I've never felt before. And then it becomes very interesting to kind of engage with that. What am I feeling? Why am I feeling it? What does it mean? How, am I starting to feel, see this in patients now on a regular basis, or is it something that is a one-off situation? And over the years, what we started to see is a whole bunch of qualities that have become quite pervasive, you know, one of which is called the leather hard pulse. Um, and you know, the leather pulse was is something that, typically has that you know scallion stalk sensation, that really hard leather quality on the surface. And then when you would press in, it would become hollow, right? And that was more of a classical pulse quality. But what we started seeing is a quality which was strikingly similar on the surface, but it didn't become hollow with pressure. So sometimes the, the leather quality would just be on one depth or it might be throughout the whole pulse. And we started to realize that this was something that we were seeing in patients after they were undergoing radiation therapies for cancer treatments. And so basically it was like a scorching of the vessels and a drying out of the fluids, the yin and the, the thin and thick thin, and even the hormonal fluids. And then I started seeing a whole population of patients, this is back now about 2008, I started feeling this pulse in teenagers and 20 year olds and 30 year olds. And of course, they were, they were not people who were undergoing radiation therapies or any cancer treatments whatsoever. And so I started noticing this massive trend coming through my office. And I got on the phone and I was talking to Leon about it and we were you know, discussing it. And we came to realize over the course of a few months that this was reflecting how individuals were adapting to and being uh, affected by electromagnetic radiation from cell phones, Wi-Fi's, and all the different types of frequencies that we're now being exposed to that we never have been in the past. And then in 2009, we published an article about this and, and to alert the profession. And then just over the next it's been eight years now, later, and it's it's like massive. It's on. I I have a hard time finding pulses that I don't find some leather hard quality on, and it's quite alarming, you know, and. The other trend that I'm seeing all the time with this is this pulse that I call sticky. And this is a pulse that I'd never ever felt before. 
Um, from my knowledge, you know, Leon had never felt it, none of the other certified teachers had ever felt it before, and luckily we were able to feel it all together down at, at a recent um, intensive a couple of years ago, but it feels like the pulse becomes waterlogged a little bit, almost like uh, one of my colleagues calls it a peanut butter pulse. It's like it feels like it, the, the vessel just adheres to your finger a little bit longer and doesn't kind of release the same way. And what I realized over time correlating this pulse is that it's reflecting toxicity in the lymphatic system, right? And so we've had pulses that tell us about um, toxicity in the blood, which is a choppy pulse, and then we've had the toxicity from electromagnetic radiation, which is the leather hard pulse, and now we're starting to adapt to a whole other layer of toxicity in the lymphatic system um, with this sticky pulse. So, you know, the it's so interesting how as you start to get involved in the pulse and you start to feel things and you start to realize that you can pick up pathologies that are taking place in individuals that have never been picked up before potentially. You can add to, you know, to the lineage in some way and start to see trends and start to be on the on, on that healing side of the curve where you can start preventing pathologies from taking place because we all, you know, we know what happens when toxicity is pervasive and it, it lingers in the body too long. We, and we know, especially in the lymphatic system, we're seeing you know tremendous amounts of of cancers and pancreatic cancers, bone cancers, and um, lymphomas, all these different types of things, breast cancers, and, and it just um, becomes an amazing opportunity. You know, it's really interesting that you, um, you know, that you're mentioning that these some of these pulse qualities that you kind of never felt before are becoming really common, and that's something that really um, confirms my experience as well. I remember in, you know, when in the mid 2000s when I'd graduated and I'd be feeling patients' pulses, and <clears throat> it was very unusual to feel a patient come in with a choppy pulse, for example. Whereas now it's very common to have that yes. choppy quality show up. And that's something that's changed a lot just in, you know, the last, you know, in the last 12 or so years. Absolutely. We, we see that all the time. And in fact, when, when Dr. Hammer updated, you know, that the big pulse book, and even when we published uh, the handbook of contemporary Chinese pulse diagnosis, that's actually one of the examples that he talked about that the choppy pulse, we look back 2005, 2004, we rarely ever saw that, being used. It used to be where Leon would consider to be an alarming pulse quality, right? And, and it had to be treated right away. And now we're seeing everybody adapting to this pulse quality. Not that it shouldn't be treated right away. It needs to be part of any treatment um, plan. But it's true. It's, it's now it's becoming so commonplace, you know, and but we're seeing, you, know, you think about how bombarded we are with different types of toxins. You know, we, we see it in, in the foods we're eating, in the air we're breathing. Um, you look up in the sky and you see, you know, different types of cloud formations from all the different, you know, from the chemtrails and everything we're exposed to. It, it's, you know, it's frightening. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I agree with you. And then sometimes, you know, I've experimented with some patients just recently where, you know, quite often, you you, you know, you see the using the example of the choppy pulse and you think, oh, wow, this is really, you know, something I've got to address. And sometimes all that I've done for that patient, yes, I've given them some acupuncture, but I might just send them home and say, I just want you to clean up your diet and just, you know, cut out sugar, cut out gluten, eat as much organic as you can. And 
And if they take that on and you feel their pulse the next week, it can, you know, so much of that can have resolved just by just by clearing up what they're exposing themselves to on a daily basis. So true. And it's quite amazing when that happens. And also the flip side of that, how frustrating it is when you don't get the compliance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and you're constantly combating um, that type of, of pulse. But yeah, I mean, you know, the chop equality has lots and lots of different etiologies associated with it. And for sure, one of them is digestive related and the inability to fully break down um, proteins and creating inflammatory responses and stagnation as a result, you know, and, and how many of us, you know, our livers are overburdened all the time. So doing anything we can do, eating organic and taking the burden off of it can only help ameliorate those symptoms. I can imagine also that compliance is uh, difficult for people when it comes to the, you know, the radiation from the electrical digital world. It's so huge. Yeah, you know, I have. Um, it's something that I, you know, I'm more often kind of writing little blog posts, and I have something coming out, I think, in acupuncture today, coming out soon about just a little recap on this issue because there's so much we can do. I mean, you know, you can be in the foothills of the Himalayas and you're still gonna have Wi-Fi kind of floating over your head, right? But, but mm. we do a lot to protect ourselves from how much of this we're absorbing. You know, next to my computers, I have big chunks of black tourmaline, right? Trying to, you know, absorb whatever I can. I don't keep my routers near, near, near me. Um, how many people sleep with their cell phones on right at their, on their night tables, you know? Mm. Turn them off, or at least put them on airplane mode, right? Um, hydrating, right? Because we know that the, one of the major impacts of EMFs and this radiation is that it's, it's a heat source. Right, it burns up our fluids. Fluids, it's scorching the vessels and the tissues. So anyone can see that. You, know, you put it to your ear for more than a couple of seconds, and it starts to feel hot. Right. Um, so doing things to moisturize our internal landscape, things like organic oils, cod liver, coconut oils. You know, staying really well hydrated. All these things make a big difference. And there, there's um, phone cases out there that work a little bit to minimize some of the radiation. So there's so much we can do. But you're right. Everyone just stuffs it in their in their pocket, and um, it's interesting. It's one of the you know one of the things I um, I tell people all the time, and and men and women are always kind of like you know wooed and amazed that I can from the pulse I say okay you you keep your cell phone in your left pocket right because um, I can tell because that's where the leather pulse is going to show up. I can always find it in men, and you know it's it's quite scary because you know. Prostate cancer is the second leading male cancer. It affects like, you know, like 15% of men, right? Um, and then you think about this in this new generation of kids coming up, all, you know, fifth graders, sixth graders start getting cell phones where I'm from, you know, in this area. And they're all throwing them in their back pockets or their front pockets. And, you know, I predict with, you know, the upcoming generation of boys that there's going to be a significant rise in testicular issues and infertility. And for women, you know, for, for women, we're going to see the same thing. I, I see women all the time sticking their phones in their bras. Right? Oh, no. <laughs> I definitely have seen that too, you know, and it was around about 2006, 2007, where um, I had gradu just graduated in 2005 or six, and 
I saw about three or four men over an 18-month period who all had prostatitis. They all had swollen prostate and they were all young tech-savvy dudes who sat around writing on their laptop with it on their lap. Yeah. And, you know, just the privilege we get as um, working in a clinic where we get to see the patterns of waves of what comes through the clinic and just to see that kind of cross-section of society and how it's being affected by something like new technology and, you know, at the time getting your laptop on the lap was, you know, that's when we were all transitioning to laptops, computers right. and those big desktops as well. So, yeah, I'm also pleased to hear you say you keep a big chunks of black tourmaline near your router and everywhere because I do the same. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, you know, it's kind of like a little bit of a running joke in my house, but um, my kids know if I see them using their phone without the special anti-radiation case or if they're putting it on their body or if, they're, if their laptop or if an iPad is actually touching their body, it gets taken away. They don't get it. That's it. Excellent. Because it's just <laughs> too much of a risk to create habits like that where we don't think about those things. That's when you get into trouble, mm. you know, when they become habituated and unconscious. And it's interesting too, I mean, you see it really with kids, I mean, to a certain extent with adults as well, but when kids have kind of been, they've overdone it with devices, they get really ratty and really like agitated and you can you can see that it's just, their entire landscape is just disheveled. Absolutely. And one of the, and one of the reasons for that, uh, and, and I think, and this is why so much of the leather pulses shows up in the younger populations more so than it's not really showing up as much in 60-year-olds and 70-year-olds. It's showing up in the ones who have significantly more fluid in their body, right? They have more water content in their brains and overall physiologically. And so the heat is scorching that additional fluid and heating things up. It's cooking things in a faster pace, right? And so when you look at um, the leather pulses, when you start to see them systemically over the entire pulse, what you, we have this, that's really a water phase insufficiency, and it's not uncommon to see all the things that go along with that, you know, anxiety and panic disorder, ADD, ADHDs, all the different types of spectrum disorders, you know, they all will get aggravated with these types of uh, issues. So I always have, any time I'm seeing, you know, children with any of these types of problems, I you have to get, you have to speak to the parents because, and they're often the ones who are most difficult. They're like, oh, you know, my child is difficult if I don't give them the computer, if I don't give them the cell phone, I don't let them play a video game. But it's, these are the problems that are creating the hyperstimulation and the exposures. Wow. I feel, <laughs> I feel like we could just listen to you talk about all the modern, you know, the modern pulse qualities to do with the hazards of living in 2016. But you were talking about 90 or more pulse qualities. Um, so, you know, what about some things related to rate, rhythm, and the stability on the pulse? Yeah, see, rate and rhythm is such a big topic because they're systemic issues, right? And they don't take a lot of skill to learn. Right? I mean, any, you know, Western medicine has distilled all of its historical knowledge of pulse pretty much down to rate and rhythm at this point, right? That's kind of, you know, what they do now. All mm -hmm. the all subtleties have, have been taken away through the years, but, um, but you can still find so much information, right? And so classically, rate has been correlated with conditions of heat and cold, 
right? But and that still um, happens here and there with a whole bunch of different types of external influences and so forth. But more often than not, rate and rhythm issues um, are reflecting far-reaching processes uh, in addition to heat and cold, right? So it always involves the entire pulse. It's always affecting systemic issues and such that it's impacting every single thing. Anything that affects the emperor affects every single minister and subject within the empire, right? So typically, rate and rhythm issues are associated with heart and circulatory disorders, right? So factors that can impact rate are most likely to include situations that, res that reflect heart shock and trauma. That's one of the real big ones that's overlooked in, in, our, in our culture and in our medicine even. And so this includes things like um, trauma in utero, um, birthing trauma, and any types of physical and emotional shocks during life. Right? Um, this of course also will alter the circulation of blood and chi from any types of physical insults. Right? Because ultimately any physical trauma will create stagnation that will create an additional workload um, and taxation to the heart muscle itself. Right? So one of the most important things to understand about trauma is that the initial impact is that it will raise the heart rate. Right? So we know this. So if, if you get scared and you, you get jolted, um, your body will recoil very quickly. Right? And it does that to protect the internal organs. Right? So you kind of go more, if someone gets really scared, they tend to recoil into like a fetal position almost. Right? That's a protection to our renmi and to the internal organs, that more sensitive, um, vulnerable areas of our body. What happens is that the blood, the heart will shunt that extra blood to those organs to protect them. And at the same time, the nervous system is going to create that fight or flight response. The adrenals are going to kick in and all of a sudden the heart rate is going to start spiking. Right Now, in healthy adults who have intact coping mechanisms, right, like the small intestine and pericardium and triple burner mechanisms, that will go back to baseline fairly quickly. But of course, in many of us, and especially the most vulnerable of us will be um, the younger populations, um, early, early, and the earlier in life it happens, the more vulnerable um, the person will be, that the ability to, of the heart to return to that normal functioning becomes limited, right? And so the heart rate stays elevated for a long period of time, and it becomes chronically elevated. And so just like anything that's going to create a rapid heart rate, it's going to cause an overworking of the heart, right? I mean, every organ system has a particular amount of energy associated with it, and if you're working a muscle or, or an organ over time and not letting it rest, eventually you're going to tire that organ system out. Energetically, it's going to get weakened and taxed, right? And so what you start to see over time is that that heart rate will then start to make its way back towards normal ranges and then eventually start to go below normal range, right? So we have um, particular guidelines that were given to us by Dr. Shen, um, which was Dr. Hammer's uh, main teacher in pulse diagnosis, of you know, generally where we'd like to see a range of um, heart rate in particular years. So you know, we know that in utero, for example, the heart rate is you know, 150, 160, 140, somewhere in that 
realm. And when the baby is born, you know, somewhere around 100 beats per minute and you know, up till the first few years of life, maybe it's, you know, 90 beats per minute and then 10 years old, you're somewhere in the upper, 80, um, upper 70s to mid 80s and the bulk of our lives, however, our pulse should be somewhere around that 72 to 78 beats per minute, right? And then as we get older, it tends to slow more and more and more and what we see very clearly and again, Chinese medicine is all about observing nature, right? So if we look at the nature of what happens in this scenario is early on when energy is most abundant, our heart rate is elevated. And as we age and tax the heart, the heart rate starts to slow down. And eventually when it slows down to a point that it stops, we die, right? So we don't want to tax the heart to a point where its rate now becomes very slow. But so we can grade and understand based off of someone's rate, based off of their age, and of course if we, if we know some of the history, we can get a sense of the severity of the trauma and the significance of that. If we don't know the age of the trauma, we could actually guess, make a very fairly accurate guesstimate as to when this trauma happened based off of what the rate is on the pulse. So someone who has a pulse of you know, 50 beats per minute and now they're 60 years old, we can be fairly confident that that trauma happened before um, puberty, right? Before the age of maturation. Because it would take that long for the heart rate to slow down so significantly below the norm in the range for that age group, right? So it helps to, to kind of grade and understand the trauma. And so, but this is also equally important for understanding um, athletes, right? So we in our Western world, we're under this misconception that a slow heart rate means that we have a very efficient heart, right? It means that the circulation is um, working efficiently. But in Chinese medicine, especially, you know, um, elucidated by Dr. Shannon Hammer and the Shannon Hammer system, what we realize is what it's reflecting is consumption, taxation of the heart over um, so many years of aerobic activity that have weakened the system. And and one of the ways that we get to really understand the dynamics of that too is it becomes so evident once these athletes hit an age, usually late 30s, early 40s, they start to show up with you know inability to handle stress the same way, um, depression, anxiety and panic, um, sleep disorders, joint pains and B syndromes, um, all from the circulatory disturbances, right? So, and they also tend to show up with ropey pulses which is an um, inflammation in the vessels and a hardening of the arteries that starts to take place from all the heat that's been engendered from the aerobic activity that scorches the internal landscape of the vessels themselves and dries out the intima of the vessel walls, right? So all of these things start to um, develop and, and by understanding rate, we can get a real clue as to what that um, triggering factor was and we start to look at all the constellations of signs and symptoms surrounding that, we can start to put together a very complex picture, right? So one of the things that we see is that that depleted rate over time is going to help us grade when the trauma happened, but also grade the severity of that trauma and, and how long it's been going on. And also it's important because it gives us a sense of prognosis, how long it's going to take to get these things back up to where we need to see them, right? Because if someone's coming in with B syndromes and a lot of arthritic and circulatory problems and their heart rate is 48 beats per minute, we know that there's a, a circulatory deficiency that needs to be adjusted and most likely for some real healing to take place, 
the heart energetics are going to need to be strengthened, heart yang, warming and strengthening to get that heart rate back up to a target range that's going to allow for better circulation, right? So that becomes a real uh, important aspect of, of, of the dynamics for rate. And when we're looking at other aspects of what causes um, an overworking of the heart, we can look at things like um, nervous system tension. So people who generally have this um, uh, hypervigilance that's kind of hardwired into their system. And again, that can come from heart shock, but it could also come from genetics and it can come from lifestyle. It can come from you know, uh, alcohol, substance abuse, caffeine on a regular basis if, if their system is, is vulnerable. It can definitely come from internal and or external pathogenic heat factors like febrile illnesses, right? And it could also show up too, you know, there's also a scenario where you have someone who generally has a really weakened heart chi and generally the heart rate's slow, but under stress they lose those adaptive responses and their heart rate can actually go very, very high, right? So we have to, you know, suss all of that out with different aspects of the pulse. Right? Could, Things like could I jump off. in? Yeah, I'm sorry. That's okay. I just wanted to ask what, if you could uh, say again, what pulse qualities you're going to feel in someone with that kind of post-trauma hypervigilance? Sure. Well, it's, it's not just one thing. It can, it can be a whole bunch of different things. Well, um, so one of the most common things to see will be this um, rough vibration that's over the whole pulse. Right, so when we see this rough vibrating quality of the whole pulse, it's a sign, it's really like a pathognomonic finding of someone who's experienced heart shock or trauma. Uh-huh. So also, is that kind of like a like an energy of, you know, you were describing the motion of shock before, like that contraction, like someone's, you know, responding to an abrasive vibration. Are you saying it's that kind of... Exactly. And the, so it's like the reverberations of that that, that go all the way down to the UN level, to the Jing level. Right, so that shock is still reverberating maybe 40, 50 years later. Yeah, absolutely. And you think about it, you know, so when like in, in classical tech, um, needling techniques, if you want to access the UN level, you needle deeply and then you very um, quickly vibrate the needle, right, or shake the needle to stir up the UN level, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the energetic of the UN level to me when it's stirred up. And it's almost like, you know, I give the example to my patients when I describe this to them, that when, you know when you, when you turn on a car and it's in park, it's usually silent. But every now and again you see an old car with a high idle and it's going, right? It's always like you always hear that idling kind of revving up in the car itself. That's what's happening in someone who's experienced trauma. That's their baseline, right? Right, right. When they're resting, even when they're sleeping, their body is still vibrating internally because the UN level has never been totally calmed and quelled and nourished, right? And so one of the major treatment principles in treating heart shock, of course, is calming the spirit and, and, and calming and, and anchoring things into the to that UN level and slowing everything back down again. And the other pulse quality that we see often with this uh, heart shock and nervous intention is that there'll be a, a hesitant pulse wave. And so that's one of our pathological um, five pulse configurations, wave configurations. And basically what we call it a, a, a pulse wave, but it's really 
the idea of a hesitant pulse is that it's actually devoid of any waveform. So it's almost like if you put your fingers on someone's pulse, you will not feel a rounding, like a, a, a rising and falling of the pulse. All three fingers will kind of hit up at the same time. Right? Um, I think, you know, like if, if you ever studied with Kiko Matsumoto, she calls that the pecking pulse. So it, it's, like, it's like the whole pulse moves as one line that just lifts and falls together. There's no actual waveform that, that rolls over the fingertip. And so that's a sign of heart yin deficiency that takes place from the trauma, and it's also a sign of overthinking and an obsessive-compulsive um, mentality. And it makes sense because, you know, when, when someone experiences heart shock and trauma, basically they've never left that trauma. It's always kind of um, dominating their personality and the way that their UN chi disseminates, right? So it's always kind of in the background, moving, right? They can't get past it. They're stuck in the past, right? So they, they can't flow and, 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 and that, that free flow of chi doesn't happen anymore for them because they're stuck in their trauma. Another pulse quality that we typically see at the chi depth, which is that first depth when you press into, is typically a, uh, a tight or tense pulse at that chi depth, which is a sign of nervous system tension. That's kind of lingered, and that's kind of from um, peripheral nervous system armoring and the hypervigilance that takes place post trauma. And you can imagine, you know, experiencing a trauma. You know, you're someone who, you know, never thought twice about going out late at night or going down you know, a dark alley to get to your house, and then one day, you know, you're, you're robbed or mugged or something happens. Every time you go outside at night, now you create this tension, this hypervigilance. You're always this extra preparedness that always needs to be on your mind to prevent another trauma from taking place, right? So that's all of these dynamics tend to weave in, and oftentimes we see all of these pulse qualities showing up in someone who's experienced trauma. You know, it's really interesting. I'm thinking about, you know, the importance of rate, which is something I think that we don't really talk too much about in um, in the way that we study Chinese medicine, the way we learn it. Um, and there were two things that really, really stood out for me. And thank you for um, for putting it out there about the importance of, you know, the clinical significance of a low heart rate in someone who has, you know, someone who's quite fit because that's definitely something that I always understood, you know, that you've you've damaged your, your yang to be able to get your heart rate that low. Like it's you've had to damage yourself to get that low. And I think that, you know, it's unfortunate that some of our, you know, the way that some people interpret it is that we allow the Western medicine ideas of fitness and how fitness is this awesome thing and we allow that to cloud our ideas about a low heart rate and we say, oh, well, it's okay if they're fit. It's only not okay if they're if they're not fit, but then right. you know. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to bring up as well is that it, um, I was thinking about my family history. I have a sister and a couple of cousins and a few other people as well who have you know problems with a, an elevated heart rate, so they've got supraventricular tachycardia. So you know even at resting, their heart rate could be as high as two twenty. Um, and so, yeah, it just it brings in a whole new perspective, I guess, to think about the idea of trauma and when that, you know, where that trauma is may lie in their body and how how to go about addressing it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the um, you know it, 
trauma is a, a huge topic and it's, it's a whole teaching in and of itself. It's a very vast subject. But you know, there's, a, there's many different um, treatment strategies that need to be all woven simultaneously depending on which ones you find in any given individual. You know? But always we're looking at strengthening and nourishing heart yin. Right? Because um, we need what happens with trauma, one of the functional dynamics is that heart yin and yang separate. Mm-hmm. Right? So the, um, the effervescent yang floats and bounds away while the more um, centrifugal, energetic, anchoring, gravitational force of the yin is no longer sufficient to control and um, sustain it. And so making sure we regain that functional contact becomes you know, of utmost importance. And sometimes, you know, at the same time, we have to um, nourish chi or nourish blood or invigorate blood or um, calm the shen or um, always we need to um, open the portals, right? That's always a huge one because in order to make, you know, our, our medicine is a spirit medicine and whenever someone experiences trauma, we must have them think about and perceive things differently. Right? And to do that, we need to clear those portals or the orifices, the eyes, the way we see things, the way we think about things, that internal narrative that is constantly on a, on a, on a loop that just keeps telling us the same thing over and over and over again. Right? And you, know, you think about, like, I always think to the examples of um, patients of mine that I've had you know, who had been stricken with very significant illnesses like cancers and come out the other side and have so much gratitude for the illness because it enabled them to see their lives in a different way and to make the necessary changes to bring them to a place where they were healthy both physically, mentally, and emotionally, and spiritually. And so if we can do that with trauma and with all of the different types of ailments that we all suffer from, that really is, I think, probably the, the biggest thing we can give to our patients. And so opening the portals becomes a treatment strategy that's you know really a crucial component. I'm sitting here and reflecting on this and thinking, wow, this is going to change. This is going to change the way that I'm interacting with quite a few of my patients. This, mm. is, this is great. Right. This is great. You know, I've had some exposure mm. to the ideas of Dr. Shen, um, one of my teachers, Heather Bruce, um, studied for a while under Dr. Shen and, um, you know, she talks about about trauma and, you know, Dr. Shen's model where, you know, he talks about the the time that we spend in utero is like, you know, it, it is a big part of what influences our constitution and what our health is going to be like for our whole life. You Tremendous, know? yeah. And, and what's happened by the time we're two is kind of like half of what is going to, be influencing our health and our inner landscape throughout our whole life, and that's a you know that's a huge, it's a huge, a huge thing really. And most of us have no memory of what happened to us below right, the age absolutely. of two. Yeah, and this is why you know um, when we look at some of the most significant diagnoses that we have in Chinese medicine and the pulse qualities that are most destabilizing to physiology. Typically, they have their roots in early life history, right? Um, most people, I mean, you know, barring you know really significant physical traumas and major accidents and things like that, you know, to get to a point where a patient has separate separating yin and yang and 
um, empty pulses and so forth, these ideologies have their roots decades prior. And they just take time. Um, they were working beneath the scenes, you know, beneath the surface. People are often unaware of them until you get that threshold that's breached or until they go for a scan and find out that they had breast cancer or whatever it is. And, and then it's like this, you know, big alarm that goes off. But um, most of these issues are, are issues that have roots, deep roots. Mm. And so you mentioned to us as well in the notes that you sent through about um, different pulse qualities and configurations that can signify impending disease, you know, the, the patients who have breast cancer or they've got hormonal problems or cardiac issues. What are you looking for on the pulse? Absolutely. Actually, you know, in one of, um, in one of these diseases, I want to just, if I can, just mention very quickly one of the etiologies behind slow pulse too. Because we talked about the, the major thing with that, because it, it goes into the cardiac issue um, that we're jumping into now, because oftentimes um, slow heart rates are a reflection of weakness in the heart and circulation, um, usually qi and or yang deficiency, but one really important one that's often overlooked and it's becoming very, very common these days, unfortunately, is poisoning and toxicity, where the pulse rate um, is typically pretty slow, usually in the 50s, if not lower, and oftentimes we see corresponding um, signs under the, um, in the mucosal in the, in the lower eyelid you know, in the inside of the mucosal lining. Usually it's like this very uneven and dark vertical lines that are very distinct. Um, so th those become really important etiologies to look for uh, that need to be addressed. You know, I have a patient right now that I'm treating who is has crazy amounts of exposure to lead and other heavy metals who's gone through tons of chelations and other types of therapies and has not had any success um, and I've been treating her now for about, I would say, three, three to four weeks. Um, and she also had, by the way, the, that um, sticky pulse, very, one of the most sticky pulses I've ever felt um, from all that um, phlegmatic and lymphatic stagnation. And we've been working on um, specifically the cardiac issues and, the, and, and purifying the blood with um, uh, this blood on clear formula. Actually, it's a, it's a modification of one of Dr. Shen's formulas for purifying the blood from these types of exposures and strengthening her heart and circulation. And she's, for the first, she's amazed at the end. She doesn't need to nap anymore. She is able to go to, go to work and, and go through her day, and she's feeling lighter, and, and the depression has lifted, and all these things. You know, so it's, it's really you know, remarkable when you start to see things from a when you can overlay a paradigm on something that maybe you wouldn't have noticed before, right? And that's really the whole purpose of, I guess, what we're doing now and talking about all these different aspects of rate and rhythm and, you know, what we can think about. It's not just count the rate, oh, it's 80, oh, it's 60. They're really important. They tell you a lot of information and they drive the treatment strategies, right? So that becomes really key. Um, okay, but anyway, so the other issues related to impending diseases. So we have you know, one of the, the roots to so many of our disease processes is inflammation, right? And inflammatory processes um, lead to things like atherosclerosis, right? hormonal disorders. And, and some of the findings that we see on the pulse would be looking at these ropey pulses that I mentioned earlier. So what happens in a ropey pulse is there's so much heat and inflammation that's generated over time that the vessel expands and 
you know, we have, our bodies are mostly water, right? And the blood is contained, again, mostly water. And now we have all this heat influencing this fluid source. And what starts to happen is the fluid of the blood starts to dry out and it starts to get thicker and more viscous. And this higher viscosity of the blood puts more burden on the heart and puts more taxation for it to pump. And so the heart starts to get weakened over time. But so this heat, though, continues to expand the vessel, and the, the vessel itself is reliant on the blood and the moisture and the fluid from the blood to keep the vessel walls supple and moist and elastic. And what starts to happen is the lack of moisture in the vessel starts to dry out the vessel, and then the more heat that gender engenders in the system, it kind of like vulcanizes and scorches the wall, and then we start to see this hardening of the wall, and then we lead into different stages of arteriosclerosis, um, and um, all the different issues that goes along with that. High blood pressure and, and the blood pressures can, can spike quickly. We run the risks of, of strokes and other um, issues like that. So when we look at um, a pulse, we have particular pulses that will show us um, impending strokes, one of which is this configuration that we call a very tense to tight, wiry, hollow, full overflowing pulse. So it's where we talked about the idea of these different depths on the pulse, the chi, blood, and organ depth. With a hollow, full, overflowing pulse, the pulse is actually, the waveform is coming above that first depth. So we shouldn't feel a pulse from when we press from the skin into that chi depth. But here we're finding this pulse that's bounding over that depth and shows this very thin, tight, hard, and, and especially if it's rapid, you know, we're looking at a really an, an imminent stroke happening. If that pulse is leather, and hollow and rapid, that's a sign of an imminent hemorrhage. That could be something like gastrointestinal bleeding or some other type of hemorrhagic issue taking place. And that same pulse quality when there's a slow rate typically means that the hemorrhage has just happened and the person's of course at risk for it to happen again. Right? So these are certain signatures that become very emergent types of scenarios. We have um, other things that lead to debilitating illnesses like cancers and autoimmune diseases, and typically those would be the unstable pulse configurations, especially the empty pulses. So usually when we're pressing down on a pulse from that chi blood organ depth, what we, what we expect to see, and if you can imagine in your mind a bell curve or a sine wave, as we press into that chi depth, the pulse is not quite as substantial as it is as we press, press deeper into the blood and then into the organ. That's where the real meat and substance of the pulse should be. Especially if you think of it like, you know, stability of that structure, like a pyramid or a triangle, you know, which is the most stable shape, right? And that's because the base is, is the foundation for that stability. And it's the same on the pulse. So as I press down, that base needs to be strong and substantial. What happens in an empty pulse, and there's, there's lots of different gradations of this, is that that bottom organ depth is missing. It's separating or it's completely missing. And sometimes when we go to a stage two, you may only find someone who has a chi depth, that the blood and organ depths both may be missing. And that's a very, very advanced and, and scary pulse to see. And typically that's where there's been a lot of manifestation of um, cancers and autoimmune diseases and metastatic problems and so forth. There's one really interesting signature though that I want to I want to mention because it's such, um, it's such a prevalent problem, and it's, it's something that I discovered many years ago when I was, um, I, you know, I get a lot, I have a very a good large practice here, and I see a, a wide variety of, of internal medicine cases and a lot of cancer patients, 
and I started realizing that there are certain signatures that predate the formation or the manifestation of breast cancer, right? And so what I found over the years is that in every one that I've ever found breast cancer in, they have an empty pulse in the left middle position associated with the liver, right? And so that reflects a lot of the dynamics of energetics and blood movement through the diaphragm. And of course, we know the liver's association um, to the breast itself. And then there's also a, a complementary position that we call the special lung position. And it's, it's actually a branch off the radial artery. It's a superficial palmar artery. And it kind of runs from um, lung nine towards like pericardium seven in that area. And typically what we find is that there's a very muffled or a very clouded pulse there which is a reflection of stagnation of all the different types of modes of circulation, you know, chi, blood, and fluid. And also, it, the pulse would typically break away and, and cause what we call a restricted pulse. And so typically, so if you imagine the length of that vessel being bifurcated and cut in half, right? So you feel either the proximal or distal portion of the vessel, but not the other half of it. And that's usually a blockage to the circulation to that anatomical structure from usually a tumor, right? Um, and sometimes you would even, in more extreme cases, see like a spinning bean pulse, right, reflecting the tumor or obstruction in the circulation. And so always when you see that, it's that, that tends to be a breast cancer scenario. What I started to realize is I started to feel in certain individuals kind of like an intermediary stage where the liver would either be empty or just about empty, and that special lung position would start to have a very reduced substance, almost like a sagging quality in the very center portion of the superficial palmar artery in that special lung position. And my theory on that was that that was the beginning of obstruction, not allowing enough circulation to move to fill up the entire vessel. And then over time, that area would kind of pinch itself off, leaving one half of that pulse position absent or restricted, and that would then be the manifestation of pulse of the breast cancer. And, you know, the unfortunate part of the confirmation of this story is that I've diagnosed that in many women who have decided to not continue treatment or have moved to other places in, in the state or country, only to find out later on, six months later or a year or two later, that they did in fact have, you know, develop breast cancer. So there's certain signatures that become really interesting and, and what I love about being able to preempt um, something like that is you know you really get to see the beginning stages and the process forming and create those interventions in a way that you know prevents so much pain and suffering and, and other types of interventions that are so toxic and everything else that most of our population tends to go towards. Wow, I think, you know, I could sit here and go through all 90 plus pulse qualities with you and just <laughs> soak it all up. My mind is cross-referencing cases that I remember over my course of working in clinic and, um, you know, there's there are so many qualities in the pulse that aren't within the 28, you know, so... Is there an article or something that would summarize the 90-plus pulse qualities from the Shen Hammer system plus perhaps your the extra ones that you've added in to the system as well? You know, I don't think there's any papers on that right now. I mean, obviously, Dr. Hammer's major textbook 
um, Chinese pulse diagnosis, a contemporary approach. I believe that's from Eastland Press, but they're out of print right now, and I don't. I think they're. It's in the process of being edited, um, and then it's going to come out as an ebook, I believe. Right. Um, that book, I think people. <laughs> it was very yeah. expensive. Something it was giving. It was causing a lot of um, back pain for <laughs> people who were carrying it. All, carrying it around. around. Yeah. Right, I know, and I imagine you would need a whole book or at least an app or something because when I say yeah. summarizing 90 pulse qualities, I realize that's not such a short. It's a book. <laughs> yeah. And you There's have also the, the handbook of contemporary Chinese pulse diagnosis, and then in the courses that we teach, we provide. So when I teach a weekend seminar, I will provide to everybody in in those classes. Uh, like a 75-page booklet which goes through all of this stuff. And we um, then go through it theoretically and then hands-on and spend our time um, going through all that information. Great. And you have some uh, seminars coming up next year, don't you? Yes. So I have um, coming up uh, on March 4th. Uh, it hasn't, none of these have been advertised yet, but they will be very shortly. So March 4th in New York City I'll be teaching – uh, on uh, Chinese dietary therapy as well as all the pulse configurations related to the digestive system synthesizing the Shen Hammer and classical pulse lineages together and then starting in April I'll be doing a three weekend series on the Shen Hammer pulse uh, in Albuquerque New Mexico with golden flower Chinese herbs and so we'll be bringing people through the different levels of pulse so from the beginning one weekend, beginning two weekend, then an intermediate weekend. And that's always been, you know, amazing things. I've done these series before and the, the ability for students to progress rapidly is, is really wonderful because one of the things unfortunately is lacking in, because there's not that many of us who teach, is consistency and constancy of, of, of seminars and teachings. And so you, cause you always need to be feeling with someone to corroborate and show you the pulse qualities and so forth and bring you through the different um, levels. So, so that's a real great opportunity coming, um, coming up. And, and then lastly, on my website, I have about a dozen or more um, webinars that are on all different facets of the Shen Hammer um, theoretical framework as well as classical Chinese medicine channel systems, the divergence and sinews and low vessels. I have a, a few-hour seminar on heart shock and trauma, which delineates all of the treatment strategies, uh, as well as herbal formulas and ideas and, and management plans, essential oils, acupuncture strategies. Again, synthesizing the Shen Hammer approaches, my clinical experience with classical um, lineages as well. So all of that stuff is kind of up there on, on the website, and it's all approved through um, NCCAOM for PDA continuing education credits. That's great. That's great. I mean, such great experience for people who can get there. I highly recommend it. And just to confirm, we're recording this at the end of 2016. So those dates is March 4, 2017, and then the three week series, April, June, July 2017. So if you're listening to this at some stage in the future and it's past those dates in 2017, then there might be some more, but you missed out on those ones. Yeah, <laughs> you have to go to Ross's website to find out what's happening in your now. Um, and I'm sorry we need to wind this up now because this is the kind of topic that we, you know, most of us practitioners thirst for. Um, so thank you so much, Ross. 
for sharing with us what you have and we will yeah, hold back the rest of our questions. <laughs> we might get you back on the show another time. Yeah. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. You know, I'm, I love this venue for getting information out. I think it's wonderful and I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit about the Shenhammer approach and, and, you know, how it's utilized and how profound it can be clinically. Right, you know we need to set up a recording studio filled with black tourmaline and then just <laughs> chill and discuss it. <laughs> but if any of our listeners would like to comment on this episode or have any um, questions or information they'd like to add in, please do so on our Facebook page. Um, and if you are listening to us through iTunes, we would love it if you could give us some ratings. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ross. Thank you guys, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ross.